Well, welcome to the Guardian Podcast with Ren Melberg. My name is Harold Nickel. This week on the show, we will be discussing governance at the Dow Chemical Company. We discussed this back in the month of May, but since then there have been even more stories from Reuters about alleged inappropriate and possibly unethical behavior by Andrew Liveris, who is both president and CEO of the Dow Chemical Company. And what we learned lately is that Mr. Liveris' wife, Paula, was in some way, at least allegedly, responsible for a hotel renovation project that went way over budget. So to catch everyone up on this story, Ren, in a whistleblower retaliation complaint filed last year, a former Dow auditor who was named Kimberly Wood claimed that the H Hotel cost overrun was the direct result of the meddling by the CEO's wife, Paula Liveris. And Ren, it, it kind of sounds silly, but according to Reuters, this really happened. And is it out of the ordinary for the CEO of a publicly traded company to give multi-million dollar responsibilities to his spouse? Absolutely. <laughs> Completely. Yeah. A um, little more common to see CEOs doing that for their children. Uh-huh. Um, we have examples of that at City, um, at um, Berkshire Hathaway. I mean, there's a long list of them, right? But spouses is pretty unusual. More unusual in this case where the spouse didn't seem to have a formal role, if you will. Right. Now, a former Dow executive involved in this hotel project kept for his own use a timeline that he said he created to chart cost increases. He charted cost increases totaling about $5.8 million after Mrs. Liveris became involved. Now, both Dow and Andrew Liveris say that Mrs. Liveris did not exercise any authority, implied or actual, over the project budget, and that any perception to the contrary is erroneous and is not supported by the evidence. So was it just a coincidence that the cost went up after Paula Liveris and her friend Mika Jones got involved? Probably not. And (laughs) the reason why this is so important is that and, and why Mr. Liveris is working so hard to say that Mrs. Liveris didn't have um, any authority is because she wasn't a, an employee of the company. Mm-hmm. Um, so she was acting in an outside capacity. And what could happen if these allegations are proved to be correct is um he could be charged with misappropriation of corporate funds. Mm-hmm. That's incredibly important because for a lot of us who've been watching this and reading this, we're having Tyco flashbacks mm-hmm. because if you remember, you know, the, the multi thousand dollar trash can and umbrella holder and all that stuff, right? For Tyco, yeah. that was his wife too. Yep. And they went to prison. The CEO yes. and the CFO went to prison for that. Um, Mr. 
liveris in anyone who may have been a participant, directly or indirectly, needs to make sure that since she was not an employee, because she she was an employee, this would be a totally different conversation, mm-hmm. right? Because projects go over budget all the time to the tune of we just have the 2014 numbers, but $65 billion in the United States in one year alone. Okay, right. that's not unusual. What's a problem here is that she wasn't an employee. So for her to be exercising this authority and to get that authority from her husband is a misappropriation of corporate funds. Yeah. That is something that you do go to jail for in the United mm-hmm. States. Yeah, it's um, it's such a odd thing, and you're right about about Tycho, um, and kind of flashing back to that incident. Now, in an interview with the Midland Daily News, Mr. Liveris said that he played no part in assigning his wife to this role; that it was another executive named Dave Kepler. Do you believe Andrew Liveris and would anybody, any reasonable person, ever believe what he says? <laughs> well, again, this is another Tycho flashback for a lot of people, right? Mm-hmm. Because in that instance, um, he also tried to claim that he wasn't the one who um, put his his wife in that position, right? That was Dennis right. Kozlowski. Mm-hmm. Um, he also tried to pin it on a subordinate. The jury, as we know, did not believe them. It was a perfect 12 jurors to zero jurors voted um, to convict him of grand larceny. Mm-hmm. Okay, and so that's why we we have a credibility challenge mm-hmm. whenever a CEO says it wasn't me or someone else who works right. for me. And that's where I believe Mr. Liveris is probably struggling and his PR people are struggling right now because it is very unlikely that as you said, a reasonable person cause, mm-hmm. and I'm glad you said it that way because this, it falls under the reasonable person standard in U.S. law, would a reasonable person believe this? And Mm -hmm. the answer so far in the courts has been no. Whenever this has been taken to a jury, the jury says no. Um, Dave Kepler, in in this particular instance, works for Andrew Liveris. And so the jury says that that directive had to have come from Mr. Liveris. Dave Kepler would not go out and do that on his own independently. Yeah, and even you had that part that uh, I don't have a vision of of Mr. Kepler or anybody just independently saying, "I know, I'll call the boss's wife and <laughs> and get her to come do this." That that would never happen. <laughs> no, it wouldn't. <laughs> it really wouldn't. Not in the real world, and especially not in a company as large as Dow. We might see that in a small family-owned company. We do often see that, actually, because you'll think, oh, 
so-and-so's spouse is really good at this, is an expert in this area. But we don't see that in corporations, typically. Not typically. Now, let's come at this a little bit differently and consider the possibility that maybe Reuters is being too harsh in its criticism of Mrs. Liveris. And this was what her husband, Andrew, said in his interview with the Midland Daily News. So, again, does this have credibility or is this just blaming the messenger? It it felt a little like he was deflecting. Mm-hmm. Um, the Reuters actually was not critical. At least I, I didn't believe. And I don't know these people, so I feel like I'm a reasonable, objective, third-party reader. Mm-hmm. They weren't critical of Mrs. Liveris. Um, they even stated that the um, overruns of almost $6 million, proportional to the size of the project, was less than 10%. Yeah, okay. And I mentioned before, right, and they even said that's not that unusual. Right. What was unusual was her relationship to the CEO and her involvement and the fact that she was not a contractor. She -hmm. was not an employee. So she was not in a fiduciary role to be making any of these kind of decisions. Mm -hmm. Their criticism, at least from what I read, and you read the article too, so you can tell me if I'm wrong. I felt if they were critical of anybody, it was Mr. Liveris. It did seem like, um, you know, his, uh, I mean, clearly from the article, as you say, he's, he was the guy that was, you know, making the decisions. And, um, and if you read the article that they quote emails that he sent. So yeah, um, it, it did seem like they were after him. I was just, I was just trying to give some uh, give some sunshine to his claim in the newspaper, hit, but yeah. Yeah, and I and I understand from um, a legal perspective why he needs to create this kind of deflection. Right. Um, but when we take his criticism of Reuters and we deconstruct the Reuters article. About 10% of it is about Paula Liveris. The rest mm. of it is about Andrew Liveris. Right. And really questioning his leadership and his governance and whether or not he is fulfilling his fiduciary responsibilities to the shareholders and the board of directors of Dow. Mm-hmm. That's really what that article is about. Yeah. And that's why I think they spend so much time on his emails, and like you said, um, and and again, I understand why he's he's creating this deflection. And to be honest, if his lawyers weren't part of crafting that message, then he was out of his mind. Yes. But when you read the article, I think it's pretty clear that he did have legal assistance in crafting his message. Yeah, it would have Thank been. God. I mean, I, I would be all over him if he didn't, because he'd be crazy. Um, so I'm glad, you know, I, I'm going to give him credit, even though I don't know for sure I'm going to give him credit, for making that very sound decision to have legal assistance in crafting his message in the Midland Daily article. Mm-hmm. Um, and he really should continue to do that in any statements about this. 
Because like we said, this is an area in which CEOs do go to prison in the United States. Yeah, and for listeners, we'll post links to uh, the Reuters article and the Midland Daily News article on Ren's website, which is renmelberg.com. Yeah, that's, you know, we will. Now, in the Reuters report, um, the lead architect whose name, Dave Grissel, he states that once Paula became involved, the budget was taken off the table, and we didn't really talk about it anymore. There was clearly a difference in the design direction, and that according to like I say, the, the lead architect. So where was the governance team when all of this was taking place? So I think this really highlights what we had been talking about before and what we suspected were systemic governance failures in a mm. culture of poor governance within Dow that we had seen um, the smoke now we're starting to see the flames of that, right? We're starting to see some pretty hardcore evidence that um, from the architect and the project manager and several other people, when Paula Liveris, for right or wrong, stepped in and became involved in this hotel project, no one questioned it. Yeah, it uh, it does, and as we'll see as we talk here um We'll understand likely why they chose not to say anything. As... Correct, <laughs> but that's what we mean about this culture. And you're, we're going to provide additional evidence, I'm sure, in this conversation that says this was a this was a significant cultural cultural issue of mm. not having good governance. Because I've been in that situation. Um, anyone in a leadership position, anyone with P and L responsibilities mm-hmm. has been in a situation where someone comes and tries to insert themselves in something you're working on. And every single one of us knows the first thing you do is clarify that person's role and responsibilities right. and make sure that it fits with what your understanding of your role and responsibility is. And what we've heard, except in one very noted case, no one else, no one really did that. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and and along those same lines, the the story names another man, a man whose name is Mike Hayes, and according to Reuters, um, said no to Paula about some of the things involved with the hotel, and then, according to the article, voluntarily retired a month later. And there were references to an email that Mr. Liveris sent to his subordinates, and in so many words said that it was time for Mr. Hayes to retire. Is is there a law against this kind of coercion, coercing employees to retire under these type or other circumstances? Um, not specifically. And actually when people retire or when someone accepts a severance package, um, that usually um, severs any protections under uh, the whistleblower law. Mm-hmm. All right. So, anyways, that's why that usually severs any protections under the whistleblower, and that's actually why co- companies um, have actions like that, where someone voluntarily retires, or there's a voluntary separation, mm-hmm. um, because they basically compensate the person to not exercise 
um, their whistleblower rights or any other rights that they may have otherwise. Yeah, that's uh, that's a good point. And again, you know, we talked earlier about was it just a coincidence? And um, well, people can read in the article for themselves and, and right. make up their own minds. Now, <laughs> and they should. But <laughs> it also is what we saw, and that was the evidence, right, that I promised that mm-hmm. in this culture, that is something that becomes well known in, in this sort of gossip, the grapevine of any company is, did you hear so-and-so spoke out against the CEO's wife and now he's leaving? Right. And that's how these cultures are created. Um, it is through that behavior, and it and people are always going to notice. People are always going to figure it out. People are never as stupid as you think they are. Oh no! And they're never go, as gullible as you think they are. They're yeah. always going to figure it out. And then that what that does is, from a governance standpoint, it shuts down the majority of your employee population. They're not only not going to speak out about the big things, but remember we've talked about this before, they're not going to speak out about the little things either. I think that's exactly right. And so you get governance failures throughout the entire company that wind up costing companies millions and billions, literally billions of dollars. Yeah, because what they learn is that, well, look, there's no upside in pointing out anything that's wrong. So just keep your mouth shut and keep your job. And right, I can totally understand and, that. And what happens too? So remember, not only does it shut down people from blowing whistles, right? It mm. also shuts down innovation. Yes. It shuts down both. So poor governance is extremely costly yes. for companies, and not having a good culture of governance. Because it's not just about, you know, tattletaling, because I've heard that so many times from people. No, it's about people saying, hey, did you realize there's a better way? That's part of good governance, too. And if you don't have that forum, you're going to lose that innovation. You're also not going to be able to keep your best and your brightest. Well, that's right. Any risk-taking of any type, innovation, new ideas, um, those go away along with the other things. And so, yeah, it's a much bigger problem than, um, than we would think at first, at first look. Right. So this is the part of the podcast where I would typically ask you about what companies can learn from this, but let's consider the employees. Is there any scenario here where an employee saying no to the CEO's wife is in any way career-enhancing? <laughs> definitely doesn't seem like it in this circumstance. And it's one of the ways that all chief um, executives, um, anyone in the C-suite, is, should be really thinking about the decisions they're making. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm just thinking of a, a company I consulted with for a while where the CEO notoriously hired in other executives that were his friends. That also shut down governance because everybody knew they were his friends. Mm -hmm. So when they were screwing up, which some of them did very badly and cost the company millions of dollars, um, one in particular uh, engaged in systemic 
um, bias against women. Mm. Um, you know, it, it, but no one could speak out because he was the friend of the CEO. And that's that's one of the things I try to I do coach people in the C suite about a lot and the board. You have the same problem. If the people know that the CEO the hire the board hired was a friend of the board, mm-hmm. they're less likely to speak out when the CEO is engaging in illegal behavior mm-hmm. or is doing things that are harmful to the company. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, so with that in mind, what, what kind of career advice do you give someone who, (laughs) who found him or herself in a, in a situation like this? Um, the best advice I'd ever been given, um, in a similar situation, which is you can't change your boss, but you can change your job. Yeah. And it's, it's hard for people, but let's always in life. I like to always remember what we can control. Right. what we can influence and what we have no control and no influence. And none of us can change who our boss is, but we can change who we work for. That's right. And sometimes it's better to just go work for another company. And there are a lot of people at Tyco and at Arthur Anderson and Enron, and we can go down the list, right, mm-hmm. who wish, who knew these things were going on, who were miserable and wish they had left. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly right. I think uh, voting with your feet is uh, oftentimes the the best thing. So let's shift gears, Ren, from from Dow because uh, there was also breaking news this week from another organization with respect to governance that we've talked about on the podcast before, and that is, of course, FIFA. Um, tell us the latest happenings about FIFA and bribe allegations since. We, we last talked about it. It seems like there was something in the news about <laughs> Robert Louis Dreyfus and Adidas. Tell us about that. So, no, when this whole scandal broke, mm-hmm. it was over um, the decisions of who was going to host the 2018 and the 2022 uh, World Cup. And it was mm-hmm. Russia and Qatar, respectively. And the U.S. government saying that those countries bought those World Cups Mm -hmm. um, through bribes and and other things. Um, A German newspaper, Spiegel, which is probably the most famous German newspaper, Mm -hmm. uh, with good reason, uh, reported this week that they've uncovered evidence that the decision for Germany to host the 2006 World Cup was likely bought in the form of bribes by the then CEO of Adidas, Robert Louis Dreyfus. They figure that it was about uh, 13 million in Deutsche Marks. Oh, man. And there's also evidence that that money over time was kicked back to Robert Louis Dreyfus. Oh, my. In uh, forms of considerations and um, advertising and things like that, um, in purchases, and um, so so yeah, this is and this is fascinating to me because it's German newspaper mm-hmm. um, exposing corruption in Germany by mm-hmm. a German company, 
uh, yeah, <laughs> pretty, pretty amazing stuff. And uh, Spiegel is looking at subsequent um, World Cups. So they're also investigating the 2010 and the 2014 World Cups to see if they can also trace uh, corruption and bribes. They have stated that they have good evidence around the 2010. Yeah, it's um, it's it's a mess. Well, and at the same time, um, the <laughs> the chair of FIFA was only suspended for six months. Goodness. For for everything that went on, right? He was suspended for six months, and he was given time served into his suspension. So he's expected to return in a couple of months. Um, it, it's just it's really kind of shocking. As more evidence of bribes and corruption is uncovered by FIFA, we're seeing the corresponding amount of arrogance from FIFA. Oh, yeah. And resistance to take responsibility and accountability for this corruption and actually do anything about it and fix it. Um, the other thing that is really got a lot of people talking about this is if bribes won countries the hosting of a World Cup, mm -hmm. were there bribes for the games themselves and the outcomes of the games yeah. themselves? And that is a question that really scares a lot of fans. Yeah, the integrity of the sport seems to be weighing in the balance here, wouldn't you say? Absolutely. And it's hard at this point with what um, Spiegel has uncovered to not believe mm -hmm. that the bribery and the corruption goes much further than just deciding who's host of the world that was going to be. Right. Yep. It's uh, like I say, it's a, it's a mess. It's uh, FIFA and Dow are two areas of governance that Ren's talked a lot about on the podcast over the, the weeks and months, and I'm confident that uh, that will continue to. And this is a very, both of these, very strange sagas. They're interesting and sad at the same time. Interesting, I think, for obvious reasons, but sad because a lot of people um, lost their jobs, and we mentioned one here during the podcast, but when you go read those other stories, you'll see there were several others. Um, right. At Dow and at FIFA, because right. there are people um, who have lost their jobs at FIFA. That's right. Yeah, but and, not the and, higher ups. They've been protected. Yeah, that's always the way, isn't it? Dang. Sadly. But yeah. I think the the outrage that people are we're seeing from FIFA, not so much from Dow, and I think it's why I like talking about Dow. Dow is fascinating to me. When mm -hmm. similar allegations came out for other companies, it was all over the news all the time. Mm -hmm. And we're not really hearing very much about Dow. Yeah. And it, and it's it's really intriguing. Um, almost soap opera-esque <laughs> way that it's rolling out to us. And so you'd think that the media would be covering this. Yeah. And you have such dynamic 
and people should read these articles, especially the interview with, with Andrew Livers. He's a very interesting, um, somewhat esoteric person. Mm-hmm. So we've got great characters involved mm-hmm. in this Dow soap opera, and yet, you know, th- there's cursory coverage of it in the media. And it does have the potential where charges could be levied. And and they've talked about it. So it, right. it, it, it's really kind of fascinating to me to see where we're going with Dow. And what does that mean? Have we gotten to a point in, in our culture that corruption at that level doesn't make it to the nightly news? Yeah, it's... Um... It's a story that, as you say, is kind of soap opera esque, and um, so be sure to tune in again next week. <laughs> well, but, we may not talk about that, but yes, do tune yeah, in next week. Yeah, but please do. And for those of you who are listening um, on iTunes or from one of the other MP3 platforms, you can be in touch with Ren at her website. We mentioned it earlier: www.renmelberg.com. You can also follow her on Twitter. And like we say, please come back next week for another edition of The Guardian Podcast with Ren Melberg.